So who would you think is the most popular bully in TV and movies? Oh, before we get going there, I am going to talk about some tough stuff today. So I just want you to be uh, prepared emotionally and spiritually, and if that's an uncomfortable uh, topic for you, please do what is safe and healthy and good for you. Uh, yeah. So, the most famous bully. Would you think it would be Biff Tannen from, anybody have a guess? Back to the Future. Regina George from Mean Girls. That is a great movie, isn't it? Draco Malfoy from the uh, Harry Potter universe. Johnny Lawrence from The Karate Kid. Scott Farkas. <laughs> Christmas Story. And this one is so old, I can only think of two of us who will even know this person. But there's a candy bar for you. Your laugh makes, you, makes me think you know who it is, but nobody said it. Eddie, Eddie Haskell, leave it to Beaver. Anybody want a Snickers for that? <laughs> yes. And most every one of us grew up knowing some bully, somebody who intimidated, threatened, dominated other people. Bullies are just a part of human existence. And unfortunately... The world is full of bullies, and bullies don't disappear when we leave high school. Bullies seem to be everywhere, even in church. Have you ever heard of these two words put together? Spiritual abuse. Now, they don't seem like they go together very well. Spiritual and abuse is kind of like an iPhone and a bathroom. Those two words really just don't go together. And neither does spiritual abuse. Here's what I mean when I use the term. Whenever a person or system in a position of power uses God or any other spiritual construct as a weapon to bully, to control, to manipulate, or to demean. Now, when someone mentions spiritual abuse, others might respond, oh, you mean things like cults. No, I mean things like churches. The churches that are located right here in the Bible Belt, Springfield, Missouri. So what does spiritual abuse look like? One person says their experience of spiritual abuse any questions can be seen as a lack of faith or the devil has a foothold in your life. If you don't think something makes sense or have questions about another perspective, you better keep them to yourself. Typically, my questions to my parents or others were met with yelling or spanking. Spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse makes you think that everything bad that happens to you is your fault and that those bad things would not have happened if you had been more devout. I have managed to rid myself of these thoughts, but it has led a friend of mine to blame her miscarriage on herself due to the lapse of faith she had at the time. Yeah, blame is a part of the 
is a tool, I guess, in the toolbox of spiritual abuse. People are told that their illnesses are their fault because they didn't pray enough, they had unconfessed sin. The poverty is their fault because you didn't put anything in the cash bucket as it went by. If you would just tithe, then you wouldn't be in poverty. Manipulation is what that is. Intimidation. I've even talked with people throughout my 43 years of pastoring who have been told that their family member's death, so often it was a parent who had to bury a child, that that child's death was due to the parent's sin. How do you live with that? Spiritual abuse. There are denominations who are trying to address this issue, but it, has, it was a practice throughout most of our, oh man, decades ago, even up to the present, that domestic violence is the fault of the abused. I know of people, of women who have come to Denise and me from other churches who were told by pastors that, well, if you would have been more submissive and if you would have respected your husband and if you would have made yourself available to your husband, then there would not be this abuse. And the victim of that domestic abuse was herself a victim of spiritual abuse by such messages as domination, intimidation, threatening, it's abusive. This girl says, my dad sexually abused me when I was nine and used religion to keep me quiet. He said things like, if God forgave me, then you're supposed to forgive me too. What we did he said, was sin. You tempted me. My church, she says, really pushed purity culture. I was terrified of revealing how damaged I was. I resigned myself to having a life without marriage and a family because I was impure. She goes on, I didn't deserve anything. It took me until my 20s to understand the abuse I endured was not my fault. When I came forward and told the police what my dad did, the church sided with my dad. They said, if God can forgive him, you should too. In the end, he is in prison and I'm free. I have no regrets. This person said, Spiritual abuse to them was a church that repeatedly told us they basically had the corner on the market of Jesus and that if we had to go elsewhere, we could miss God's highest intimidation and threatening. I have personally been told by people who were told by spiritual leaders, by pastors, that they didn't need medical or psychological help from a professional, all they needed was to read their Bible more and pray more. They didn't need to go, especially to a psychologist. 
They've been told that any meditative practices, including yoga, were opening doors to the demonic into their lives. And that if they were to ever read any other book for spiritual guidance than the Bible, then it wasn't just theological heresy, it was demonic invention. I think it's sad, Mary says, that a six-year-old girl goes to bed at night in mortal fear that the rapture is going to take place and God is going to leave her behind. My gosh, that was so true in my world. My God, that's why every night the majority of children in evangelical churches pray again every night for Jesus to come into their heart because they're so deathly afraid of either dying, going to hell, or the rapture coming and having to go through the tribulation. Just total, total fear. Those fears stayed with me. I wonder if that was my nightmare last night, Nisi. I have nightmares all the time. I don't wonder if it's that coming back. Who knows? I would go shopping with my parents, and if I lost them in the store, I was sure that Christ had come back, and I was left. I've never talked to anybody who felt so frightened, who felt so scared all the time. That's no way for a little girl to grow up. No, it's not. That's spiritual abuse. So many children walk an aisle at the end of the sermon when the invitation is being sung. And so many children respond to an invitation at a VBS or at a church camp. So much out of fear. So much out of pressure. We've seen in the last five, ten years or so, a number of very prominent, good, oh my gosh, they had such high reputations. Leaders of Christian organizations step down, being asked to step down, being let go of their position because of spiritual abuse. Many times that spiritual abuse took the form of sexual assault. Sometimes that spiritual abuse took the form of, of a coercive leadership style of an intimidation, not just to staff, other staff members, but an intimidation to volunteers and to the other leaders in the church and to the church body at whole. Uh, one of my favorite guys in the, who had such an influence on my life helped me transition from the Southern Baptist world to the Fellowship Bible Church world, denomination to non-denomination was... Bill Hybels from Willow Creek outside of Chicago, and he stepped down because of spiritual abuse several years ago. We all know very likely the story of Mark Driscoll, who wasn't sexual abuse, it was intimidation with his staff, intimidation with other leaders, just a harsh, harsh leadership. Hillsong is so popular. I mean, so much music that I have done and back in the previous church especially was produced by Hillsong and just recently the founder of Hillsong was released from 
his job because of spiritual abuse. And the pastor of Hillsong Church in New York was released because of sexual uh, abuse. This happened so many times. Leaders who were respected, they were influential, they did a lot of good in their life, but they abused their position. Power hungry, maybe, I don't know. Leaders who somehow veered away from these words. Peter says, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. That word translated eager is so interesting. It's, it's also the word throughout the Greek New Testament translated as lust. And we always think of lust in a sexual way, but that's what that word is, to desire, to lust. I just do this not because I get paid or not because of anything else, but you just want to do it. That's what Peter is saying. And he says in verse 3, Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. i got to be honest that when it comes to ministry, I've dropped the ball so many times. I have not batted a thousand. I've hit the ball into the rough. How many sports metaphors can I come up with here? <laughs> I've shot an air ball so many times. I'm, I'm not done it perfectly at all in these 43 years. I've not cared for people the way I should care for people. I've been guilty of neglect. I've had bitterness and toward people, and I've played favorites, I'm sure. I've, I've hurt people in different ways. I've hurt people sometimes unintentionally and sometimes intentionally by what I've taught. Hurtful things, exclusionary messages, and judgmental and condemning words out of my mouth. I live with that. And I don't point a finger at other leaders without understanding my own frailty. But this word that Peter uses at the end, don't lord it over People don't lord your authority over people. It's a very unique word. It's the very same word that Jesus uses. And Luke records this story too. Jesus called them because the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And uh, Jesus called them and said, You know, if the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that word translated lord is two Greek words. One means lord, just somebody in authority. But the prefix of that intensifies it. It's, to, it's an extreme lordship. It's an extreme authority. And it sometimes it's translated with the English word against. It's a lordship that goes against people. It's used to harm people rather than to help people. So he says, the rulers of the Gentiles do it that way. And those in high positions use their authority over them, but it must not be this way among you. 
Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servants. Jesus is very clear. I don't think we can miss it about the demeanor and the behavior of a Christian leader. And that's not just of a leader of a Christian organization. It's a leader of any organization. And that leader happens to call themselves a Christian. And regardless, if you're a leader of a church or you're a leader of a business or the leader of whatever, any organization, if you claim the name of Christian, then you're not going to lord it over people. And I think Jesus is calling all of us, test yourself by this, that the person who is the greatest is in the highest position of leadership is to be the servant of those that are led. And when the pastor especially dominates and leads by intimidation and threats and dominates the staff and dominates the volunteer leaders and the workers and, and dominates and threatens the congregation, then that pastor is creating a refuge for abusers rather than a refuge for those who are abused. Today is Palm Sunday. According to three of the four Gospels on this day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a symbolic statement. Jesus was making a statement that I'm not coming into Jerusalem on a war horse to conquer with violence and to conquer with the sword. I'm coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> Who does that? I remember in high school, all these cool guys had these muscle cars, and a few of them had vets, and a few of them just had just, just such cool cars. A couple of, you know, wealthier families had just really... Somebody had a Datsun, what was that Z car called, 240Z? Man, it was so good. I drove in my little 68 VW Beetle. <laughs> I think it's thought Jesus drove into Jerusalem with a little 68. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> the other rulers have come in in their Dodge Chargers. Yeah. Maybe that's why I've always liked Beetles. <laughs> But after he got into Jerusalem and went to lunch, I'm sure, he stopped over at the temple, and he saw that the leaders of the temple were abusing the worshipers by treating them unjustly, and Jesus called them robbers. And I think that there was a two-fold meaning of the word. They were not just robbing the worshipers of their money by charging more than what was necessary for the sacrificial animals. He was robbing them of their dignity, of their personhood, of their esteem. And I, I've been a voice of preachers who have robbed people of their self-esteem, of their dignity, of their humanity by my harsh words. There are so many times that people leave an auditorium 
on a Sunday morning, who feel absolutely obliterated and their selfhood has been just assaulted. They feel so bad about themselves. Well, Jesus drove them out by making a pretty loud racket, just making a mess of the whole place. He didn't hit anybody. He cracked his whip, Indiana Jones style. You see him getting out of his beetle with his whip. (laughs) And he ran everybody out. Now, after all of the robbers were driven out, Matthew records, then the blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple courts and he healed them. When Jesus created a safe place, when Jesus let in all of those who had previously been left out, the blind and the lame, people who are experiencing special needs, Matthew says that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, became indignant. That's the very same word that the gospel writers used to describe how Jesus felt with the disciples. You all remember the story when the children wanted to come to Jesus, and some of them were coming to Jesus, and the disciples stepped in and said to the parents, No, you can't bother Jesus. He's too busy. And the gospel writers record that Jesus became indignant with his disciples because they would not permit the children to come. The marginalized, those without power, children had no power. If you've been a parent, you know the children have all the power. (laughs) I mean, you're sleeping sound and that baby cries. I mean, you're, you know, 200 pounds and they're six pounds. And that baby cries, boy, that baby's controlling you. You're up, and you're taking care of that baby. Uh, But in that culture, children had no power. Jesus became indignant, and the Pharisees became indignant with Jesus because Jesus was letting into the temple those who had previously, based on Scripture, been left out. They were discriminated against, those with special needs, based upon Scripture, and the Pharisees were so married to Scripture. And again and again, Jesus would challenge them, no, the Scripture is not about legalism, and it's not about your own needs. It's about taking care of people. Mercy, he says, again and again, is better than these sacrifices that you're making. Even these sacrifices for sin, they're not as important as mercy to people. And the law said, no man who has any defect is to come near. No man who is blind, lame, facially disfigured or deformed. And it goes on to describe different manifestations of that special needs. And Jesus drove out those who made the temple exclusive. And he then welcomed in the marginalized. The lesson that I learned from that are, is multifaceted. I learned, number one, by that story that Jesus is telling us 
that we must always create the venues to be a place, not just as, that is open to the marginalized. I mean, every church is going to say that they're open to the marginalized. But I hear Jesus saying to me that the venues has to be a place as, that is intentional, that as its vision, as its practice, as its mode of operation has to be to not just be open to the marginalized, but to elevate the marginalized. That those who have been left out are now placed in positions of honor. Those who have been forced to be silent have now found a place where they have been given a voice. And Jesus goes on. And I love the times that Jesus quotes the Hebrew Scripture. And he goes on and he, he talks to them. Let me, I, I got ahead of myself, so let me just go back and do this. What if you have been a victim of spiritual abuse? How will you move to a place of healing? And I know that there are some here who have been those victims. So... Let me catch up with myself. Never suppress your hurt, your pain, your emotions. Give voice to those. Now, after this story of Jesus driving out the robbers of the temple and welcoming those with special needs into the temple, Jesus quotes to the Pharisees who were indignant their own scripture. And he quotes Psalm 8, 2 and says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants, those without power... You have found a God. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes. And you will use those who have no voice, those who have no power, to silence the abuser, the enemy, and the avenger. I love the power that Jesus gives to the powerless. And he says, use your voice. And when you who are marginalized, you who are victims of abuse, have been given a voice, it will be your voice that will silence your abusers. Hey, Nisa, will you throw me the Kleenex box? I'm just getting so emotional. Thank you, dear. I apologize for having to take care of my own health issues while I teach. Will you turn the mic down for a minute? <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you. Just cut this off for the uh, online people. <laughs> people who are checking out the venue says, I am never going there again. That's for sure. Thank you, family, for letting me do that. Second thing, if you're a victim of spiritual abuse, just remember that abusive religious people whether they be pastors, institutions, they do not represent Jesus. Don't confuse, don't ever confuse the church with Jesus. Don't confuse Christians with Jesus. Third thing, do not be afraid to leave an abusive environment, whether that's your home or your church. It's okay. Fourth thing, 
get professional help. Don't go to your church. I don't know of any pastors who are trained to help with those who've been spiritually abused. Most pastors are the abusers. I would encourage you to go to a, a therapist who is trained in PTSD, trained in abuse of all kinds, somebody that's very objective. Most pastors, there are exceptions, I'm sure, won't be that objective. I just encourage you to get some professional help. I close today with this promise from Hosea. So many Jesus feelings in the prophets, the minor prophets especially, so many passages on hope and love and justice. God gives a promise there, I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. You've been in a valley of trouble, of spiritual abuse. And I think God is telling you that there is, out of that valley, a door of hope. And there she will respond as when she was young, as when she came out of Egypt. Just know that God hates violence and injustice. Parents, listen up. You are instructed in Proverbs 4.17 to not teach your kids the way of violence. You have that mandate. For the rest of us, Proverbs 3.31 tells us, warns us, do not envy the violence. So many people who are violent and abused others are in positions of authority and power, and we become envious of those people in authority and power, even when they're violent, and the Proverbs says, don't envy them. Don't choose that way. And each of us has daily a choice to make. I can be hateful, I can be violent, maybe not actually slap somebody like Will Smith did, but I can be violent in my spirit. I can be violent in my heart. I can be hateful in my heart. I have a choice every day to be violent. Or I can be just, and I can be fair, and I can be kind, and I can be loving. And I can fight for justice without violence in my own personal life.